Hi everybody, my name is Michael Domingue and welcome to Strange Tales of Myth and Magic. In this podcast, we're going to explore mythology and magic and fairy tales and wives' tales and maybe some snakes' tales. We'll take a peek at some of the strange legends and stories throughout history and how they affected culture and how they affected me as an artist. So sit back and let me tell you a story. This episode, The Cyclops, The One-Eyed Guys. Hi everybody, uh, this is Michael Domeng, and you know, I haven't done any podcasts in some time, and I thought today might be a good day to do one, because for, for some reason, I've had something on my mind. It's one of my favorite creatures, and it's been just hovering around, and I've actually wanted to do a podcast on this particular creature um, for some time, and time seems right. So let's jump in. And it, it this really, this story really starts a long, long time ago, jillions of years ago. Well, jillions of years for me, anyway. And it brings me back to Saturdays in the summer. And, and when I would go and visit my grandparents, oftentimes, I would go to the Saturday matinees. Now, they're really not around anymore. Um, They're kind of an extinct thing these days. But as a kid, long before the theater chains, um, these places were pure magic. And the best ones were actually the ones were really weathered and, and, and they seldom played like current movies. It would have been usually vintage or cult films. And... A lot of these, during the days, um, on Saturdays anyway, um, they would cater just to kids, like the first couple showings would be stuff for kids. Um, Now, if you count the second feature, the floors would already be, you know, sticky from pop and and milk duds. Um, and, And these shows were typically filled with almost only kids. Um, usually, you know, parents would sort of drop, you know, the kids off and come back and pick them up in a couple hours. Or, or if they were in there, if they, they did decide to go in there, um, they would hide in the back. Because these places were often, when you were watching a movie, you'd, you'd see these silhouetted projectiles of popcorn flying across the screen. It, they were wild, crazy war zones where kids were just free to be nuts, at least for a couple hours. Now, it was here, it was in this sort of place, that I saw my very first Cyclops. Now, the film was The Seventh Voyage of Sinbad, and this is a masterpiece by preteen standards because it was filled with with creatures of all shapes and sizes. And, you know, there were snake women and dragons and a two-headed vulture, and there was a skeleton duel and all this good stuff. And it was filmed in what was called Dynamation. And this is pretty much just a snazzy title for stop animation photography. So, and this was done by the maestro of stop animation cinematography, and that would be Ray Harryhausen. Now, in this particular film, um, there were so many different creatures that, you know, a kid like me was just like nuts. Oh, look at all these monsters. Woo! But I will always remember the moment the Cyclops ventured onto the screen. 
There was in, in, in this war zone of a theater, there was a rare hush as this beast lumbered after Sinbad and his crew. Now, this was no ordinary Cyclops, though. This shirtless giant with sort of a putrid pink leathery skin. It had hairy goat legs and it had a just giant large horn protruding out of its head. And of course, there was a singular large eye that was framed by a rather grumpy furrowed brow. I was in love. As, as were millions of other monster-loving kids across the globe. This was amazing and spectacular. At this point, I became a Cyclops addict. I sought out everything and anything that was Cyclopean. Comics, toys, which, by the way, it's not like these days. You know, they didn't have these these ready-made toys the minute a movie would hit the theater. No, I was, you know, I, I had to look for these things. And, uh, you know, if memory serves me correctly, though, um, I went through a similar phase um, about five, I don't know, maybe about five or six years later, um, with the release of Jaws. And um, so, you know, I remember collecting sharks. So a very, very similar phase when Jaws came out. When I saw The Seventh Voyage of Sinbad, it was not a, it was not a new movie. It had been out for a while and, you know, would, you know, like Saturday matinees, it would periodically sort of cycle back in or it might show up on TV, I guess. But um, so this was my first time, but it had been out, I don't know, maybe maybe about 10 years, perhaps, maybe maybe more or less. But the cool thing about my Cyclops obsession at that time was that my grandparents had a contact lens business. My grandfather was an optometrist. And so I would hang out in the lab a fair amount of time in my, my childhood. And it was always filled with eye charts. You know, that's good. And periodically, periodically, my grandfather would have glass eyes rolling around. I mean, I literally rolling around, but, but hanging around. So I got my eye fetish um, at my grandparents' work, which I thought was pretty cool. Not long after seeing this film, um, I actually made a piece of art that, that wasn't really related to the film, but it was like, as far as I know, the first Cyclops um, I ever drew. And it was actually a storybook in which a astronaut visits the moon you know, so each page is a different part of the story. Um, it visits the moon and finds a giant, yellow, hairy, pointed-headed cyclops hanging out there all alone. And, you know, of course, the, the astronauts look, oh my, what am I going to do? And the, the cyclops, being sort of a monstrous cyclops, decides to crush the spaceship, kind of like a tin can, crunch crunches it down. And of course, our hero, the astronaut, is stranded on the moon. Well, of course, the Cyclops goes after the man. Fortunately, the astronaut has a ray gun, which he zaps the Cyclops, and the Cyclops falls off the moon. All right, so our hero is stranded on the moon. He dials home. And next thing you know, a really cool looking spaceship. This one was way cooler than the first spaceship that I drew. But it's sort of a cool, sporty looking spaceship comes zooming to the moon and picks up, picks up the stranded astronaut and um, the, two, the two guys head back to Earth. Now, mean, meanwhile, as they're flying back to Earth, um, you can see the floating Cyclops stuck in space. He's dead, of course, but he is floating in space. And then the two astronauts land, and um, 
Um, they're given lays as they arrive. I, I lived in Hawaii at the time, so you know, receiving lays as they they got in into the uh, I, apparently airport um, seemed appropriate. So I thought we should go back and look at some of the myths and legends associated with our Cyclopean friends. Apparently, um, plural is Cyclopus. So our Cyclopus. So we'll we'll take a look at the various Cyclopus throughout throughout um, time in in myth and lore. Cyclopus sounds weird, I have to say. So excuse me if I don't if I don't use it very often. It's it's a strange it's a strange word to say. Um, so anyway, probably the the most the most common um, cyclops, at least when people think of what a cyclops is, is really associated with Greek mythology. I, I think that the Greek mythology really has taken hold in terms of what we think of, of cyclops, right? And it, you know, the big brute giants, you know, of course, one eye, you know, it, and they're just, you know, sort of thuggish, thuggish monsters. Now, what many people don't know is that in Greek legend, um, there are actually three different types of cyclopses. And this is also, you know, they sort of vary from story to story. So even though there's Greek mythology, there's variation within Greek mythology. So there are three different types of cyclopses that are referenced in the various tales. So the first kind is the Uranian cyclops. And um, this consists of three immortal titans. So remember, titans are sort of pre-Olympians. They're like the, the early, early gods. And these guys were master blacksmiths. And there were three of them, Brontus, Steropus, and Argus. And they were responsible for doing really cool things like the invisible helmet of Hades, Poseidon's trident, and probably most famously was Zeus's lightning bolt. Now, the next group um, is kind of when you translate the word, and I, I don't even know what the word, how you'd actually pronounce it, but the, the word actually translates to hand-to-mouthers. And I know it's not a very attractive moniker, but it, it kind of it kind of describes what, what it was they did. And these were giants that roamed around kind of taking odd jobs. And the odd jobs they would take, it wasn't washing dishes at a, at a diner. Of course, they were big and strong, so they would build walls and, and bridges and things that required the work of a giant. Now, the final group, which is probably the most famous, are the Sicilian Cyclopses. And these were a pretty savage beast, and they were shepherds, typically, and they lived on the island of Sicily. And... Yeah, Sicily in Italy, right? This is where the these guys hung out. Thus, they were Sicilian, and the, probably the most famous of these Sicilian cyclopses. And no, it's not Don Corleone. It was Polyphemus. Now you might know him because he is one of the villains of Homer's The Odyssey, and you might have had to read that in high school or or maybe college. But he's a cranky giant who captures the wandering sea captain Odysseus and his crew, and then Polyphemus traps him, traps him in his cave, and, and more or less, one by one, he starts gobbling them up. Now, fortunately for Odysseus, the Cyclops isn't the sharpest scimitar in the army, so with a bit of trickery, 
some wine and a pointy stick, always handy to have all of those things. Um, Odysseus blinds Polyphemus and escapes with his remaining crew. This, of course, makes a cranky Cyclops even crankier. Um, but they, they get away. I mean, the, the Cyclops, Polyphemus, throws a giant stone at him and almost, you know, hits their ship or at least makes the waves bring the ship back to shore. But nonetheless, he's blinded and, and he's bummed out. A bit of backstory about Polyphemus. He was the son of Thusa. And this is a um, sea nymph. And she's, you know, complete with the little mermaid tail. Um, you know, the typical little mermaidian um, sea nymph sort of, sort of mom. And his dad was none other than Poseidon. That's right, the head honcho of the sea. And this might sound a little weird to you, given that you've got two really aquatic parents, and they give birth to a really very land-bound giant. And, and, and what does he do? He herds sheep. You know, and, you know, I'd be doing like some genealogy testing, but nonetheless, this is these sea dudes give birth to a land dude. Kind of nutty. Now, way before Odysseus, when the grumpy monster was younger, but probably teen or whatever a teen is in the Cyclops years. I mean, time is a strange thing when it comes to godlike creatures. So in his in his adolescence, Polyphemus, you know, he he would do his sheep herding and uh, by the day and then wander down to the shore at, at the evening. And and one day he wanders to the shore and he sees the most beautiful thing he's ever seen in his life. And that is the sea nymph Galatea. And, and she is actually described as the most beautiful of all the 50 sea nymphs. Now, he wanted to approach her and, you know, and say, hey, I want to go do something sometime. But he was feeling a little self-conscious and he is kind of monstrous and he was very self-conscious about his big eye in his forehead. And he, he realizes that he's not the, the best looking dude. But finally, time passes and he gets up his nerve and approaches her. And he does his best, his awkward best and very, you know, he's not very cultured and smooth. But, and, you know, it says, hey, you want to go do something? And Galate Galatea, she's polite enough, but nonetheless, pretty direct with the Cyclops. Um, and, and just basically says, look, this really isn't meant to be. I'm of the sea. You are a land guy. You herd sheep. I hate sheep. So I don't think this is going to work out. But we can be friends. You know, those, those infamous, horrible words that you, you hate to hear, right? When you're, when you want to go out with somebody. Yes. Can we be, we can be friends. Yeah. So this bums out Polyphemus, of course. And he goes away dejected and sad and depressed. And then he gets pissed. But not so much at Galatea. He gets pissed at his mom. And then he goes to see her and he goes, hey, and he tells her off. He's like, you know, what's the deal? Why didn't you put in a good word for me? Which, by the way, I would never ask my mom to do that. That always seemed like a bad idea. You know, it's, I mean, a different era, I guess, matchmaker times. But yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have my mom do that. Anyway, so the Cyclops then goes on to say that, that he never really had a chance with her because she had never taught him to swim. And if she did, he might have had a shot. 
And I have to say, he has kind of a decent point. And you've got a sea god and a mermaid, and they don't even teach their son to, to swim. That's kind of strange. And I mean, you know, it seems like at least you do is you give him some water wings and he can paddle around out there as he's growing up. But nope, Poseidon and, and Thusa never did any of that. Anyway, so Polyphemus goes about his days dejected, sad, periodically hanging out at the cliffs until one day he sees Galatea again. But she's not alone. Nope, not alone at all. She's with a dude, and they are making smoochy face. But this isn't just any dude. This is Achis. And this is the son of the satyr Pan. So Pan is the god of wild and merriment and flocks. And, you know, he's he's got sort of a lower torso is sort of like a goat. He has sort of the hooves, that sort of thing. Plays little plays little flute, a pan flute. Um, so this kind of pisses Polyphemus off. I mean, no kind is about it because she's hooking up with a sheep herder. She said she didn't like sheep. Meanwhile, she's smooching with a sheep herder. So feeling betrayed, the Cyclops reaches for the nearest thing, which happens to be a giant boulder, and lobs it through the air. Splat! One shot, he smushes Achis, turning the son of Pan into a pancake. Now, don't feel too bad for Achis. I, I mean, kind of sucks to be splatted, for sure. But as his blood trickled away, it went into a nearby stream, and, and the gods took pity on him and transformed him into a river spirit. Therefore, he and Galatea could be together forever and ever. As for Polyphemus, well, he continued on just getting grumpier and grumpier, and then, of course, his monstrous nature became his undoing in that cave with Odysseus. Now, I can't help but think, assuming these were these these characters were real people, but I can't help but think that if only Mumsy had taught him to swim, or if he decided not to throw that boulder, perhaps his fate might be a little better. Better things would await Polyphemus. Perhaps he could have been a philosopher, but we will never know, because he threw that boulder. Now, one of the things I always love is if I hear stories about where a legend or a myth may have come from, something that actually happened that might have led to people believing a certain thing. Well, there is such a thing um, that happened with the Cyclops myth, and, and I'm, I'm pretty convinced this is accurate, but one of the things they found in a cave in Sicily, believe it or not, you know, Polyphemus uh, neck of the woods, was a fossil of a skull that, that is about t roughly twice the, twice the size of a human skull. And it's actually somewhat humanish, but, but very brutish. Um, it's got a huge jawbone. Imagine a really monstrous looking human is sort of what this skull looks like. Um, very pronounced, you know, sort of, yeah, thick jaw, you know, the, the old cartoon thug type of, type of jawbone type of thing. Um, 
The other thing it has, of course, is a giant hole in the middle of its head where a cyclops eye would fit perfectly. So what could this be? What, was it a cyclops? Was there such a thing once upon a time? Was there a one-eyed beast? Well, actually, no. Um, what this skull was in this cave in Sicily was a dwarf elephant. It was a fossil of a dwarf elephant. And the large opening on the forehead wasn't for an eye. It wasn't an eye socket, but it was rather a nasal cavity. This was where the trunk came out. And I can imagine if you lived in ancient Greece and you happen to be like, you know, rummaging around, digging up things, and you find this giant skull, you would be pretty convinced that a one-eyed beast once lived in that cave and might still live there. You know, it's a sort of the same, same reason that I believe that a lot of the dragon legends came from finding ancient you know, fossilized dinosaur bones. Same kind of thing. You find this giant lizardy skull. And you say, "Hey, they're dragons." Makes perfect sense. So I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't be surprised if that's where the Cyclops myth started. I mean, the Cyclops myth has been around for a pretty long time, and so probably there were a lot more dwarf elephant skulls way back when. Now, speaking of early Cyclopses, Babylon is probably, well, at least there's evidence of the earliest stories of a Cyclops coming from Babylon. And this is about roughly about 2000 BC. Now, the reason we know about this Cyclops legend, or at least some of it, um, is because of a clay plaque that was found. And on this clay plaque is a warrior god named Nergal. And He's in the process of sort of putting a big knife into the gut of this sort of humanoid creature, but it has a, a sun-like head. It looks, you know, like a, a sun with rays coming out of it, um, you know, mouth and all that stuff. And then it has a singular eye in the center of it. And as I said, there's not really much known about this character, um, but I'm guessing it's crabby, like, the Greek Cyclops is the only reason I would say that is, you know, nothing like a sword in the gut um, to put you in a bad mood. And since we're on the topic of cranky Cyclopses, which so far has pretty much been all of them, um, the early Celtic culture had a really, really cranky Cyclops. Um, and this one was called Ohakanu. And I, forgive me, those who know ancient Celtic um, words, um, Ohakanu um, was a giant ranging from about 10 to 20 feet tall and quite hairy. And, and the males were said to have these long red beards that would actually reach the ground. Um, now, the weirdest thing about him, I know they're, you know, Cyclops' eye in the middle of the head, but, but weirder than that is that on each hand and each foot, um, they have 10 digits, you know, so they have a total of, of 20 fingers and 20 toes. I mean, big shoes and big mittens for these guys. Now, the Ohan, the Ohan canoe were um, really, really pretty brutish and mean. 
they they kind of on their days off they like to smoosh huts and and block waterways and just just do nasty mean things you know the sort of the giant type of stuff giants kind of like to do stuff like that and these guys were no different now interestingly you don't hear much about um, female cyclopses in myth and legend though greeks do have them it's just they're they don't often make it into um, the stories um, but the Ohakanu actually did have females, and which were called Ohakana, and they were very similar um, to the males, except without the beards. Um, and they had um, really long, drooping breasts, um, so long and drooping that they reached the ground. And it was said that they would have to throw them over their shoulders in order to run. A little bit inconvenient, to say the least. As bizarre as the Oha Canoe are, and they're pretty weird, as bizarre as the Oha Canoe are, I would say that the prize for the weirdest Cyclops actually goes to Japanese myth and legend. And this, this Cyclops um, in Japanese culture is called a Kasa Obake. And these, uh, this Cyclops is a, a mythical ghost. It's part of the yokai, which yokai are, are sort of like spirits or, or myth, m- mystic ghosts that, that are sometimes good, sometimes bad, um, a lot of times cause mischief, that sort of thing. Well, this Cyclops, the Casa Obake, is a, a sentient umbrella. That's right, like a parasol. Um, and this thing hops around on one leg, so instead of like the the handle or the stem it has a leg and it has one eye and it it's often depicted with having the sort of mouth that has this long sort of gene simmons tongue hanging out now if you want to catch a glimpse of one um there's a movie called 100 monsters it's a, a japanese film made in i think 1968 or so um and it's got a, a bunch of crazy yokai uh, in, during samurai days, and it's sort of a it's sort of a, a B movie monster type thing, but but kind of fun, crazy crazy creatures, including the um, sentient umbrella with one eye. And the the reason the reason if you're wondering what what could this be, what why an umbrella, what what is the purpose of having a spirit that's an umbrella? Well. Basically, it's said that the, the idea of this particular spirit is that um, everyday objects can actually um, become spirits after 100 years, after you know something's over 100 years old, that an object can actually gain sentience and, and become this sort of spirit. And it's said that the purpose of this particular yokai was to discourage people from throwing out objects that have a long history, you know, at least while they're still useful. So if you have this old chair and it's a perfectly good chair, but you throw it out, you might be haunted by an umbrella monster. Why did you throw out that chair? You still had plenty of use in it. And this, this I have to say, makes, makes me wonder because it might explain my proclivity towards using found objects in art. I mean, could it be that secretly I'm afraid of being haunted by an umbrella monster? Yeah, I don't know. Anyway, it's got me thinking. I have to say that umbrella monsters don't really jive with what I consider to be a cyclops. 
I, I, I think, I think of them as being more monstrous, giant, brutish things. You know, big uh, stompers and squishers and gobbler-uppers. That, that's the way I view cyclopses. Now, monsters in myth and legend are typically metaphors. Well, I shouldn't even say typically, because they're always metaphors for something happening in the real world. And different types of monsters can symbolize different types of trials and tribulations. I mean, for instance, a Frankenstein monster might represent the consequence of playing God. Okay? A vampire might symbolize the dangers that are associated with seduction and lust. Um, in the case of a brutish, violent, Greek-styled cyclops, um, it seems to me that they could symbolize a desire to be wild, in in a, to to be without rules and and without societal pressures and it's important to note that these symbols can be simultaneously something that a person is battling from the outside world or something that they wish to be more like so for instance about that time that I saw Sinbad um and perhaps the reason I was so in, in enamored by the beast was because I had just moved to a new school and was feeling very much like the lonely outsider. I felt like a small, insignificant kid plopped down and, you know, on a strange island inhabited by giants. That's the way I felt like in school. So I, I kind of felt like Sinbad. I was, you know, in my new school, in my new neighborhood, I was Sinbad on an island of monsters, on an island of cyclopses. But, but also... Um, I found myself connecting with the Cyclops. Because, like the Cyclops, I felt ugly. I felt like a weirdo. I felt like I was content, and suddenly all these unwanted things started happening in my life. I saw the Cyclops, and I wished I was strong and not afraid. And that, like the Cyclops, I could just swat the problems away like tiny little spears. I wanted to growl. I wanted to stomp. I wanted to smush things. So, yeah. In some ways, I was both Sinbad and the Cyclops. I wanted to defeat the monsters, but I also wanted to have some of the attributes of the monster. Now, I remember when I was very young, I remember I used to have nightmares, and then they were most of the time they were filled with monsters. And my mother had recommended that if I had a nightmare, and after I woke up from a nightmare, I should draw a picture of it. And maybe draw a picture of it and me somehow controlling it, defeating it, killing it, whatever the case may be. But with my crayons, suddenly I had the power to zap with a ray gun or bonk on the head with boulders these creatures that haunted me. It allowed me to control the monsters as opposed to them controlling me. Suddenly, I was in the driver's seat. And it's, and it's something that I do to this day, whether it's, you know, art that I, I put in galleries or um, I have a process that's called morning monster. And every day I wake up with a coffee and I draw a little monster. And this is sort of an homage to how the process started. It's a way of sort of exercising the demons or taking control of the demons, using the demons uh, to, to use them in whatever way that's most beneficial. They're not without value. Monsters come in handy. Sometimes it's good to be monstrous and brutish and wild and crazy.
And granted, you may not want to do it at a nice restaurant, but you can always do it in art, no matter what. That's it for this episode, everybody. Thanks for listening. And if you're interested in learning more about these things, I'll have uh, blog posts that relate to this topic and some resources. And also, you might be interested in checking out my weird, mythologically inspired artwork. So head on over to www.michaeldemeng.com and you can check out the weirdo stuff that I do. All right. Until next time, I'll be mything you. Thank you.